Hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of the E-Squared podcast series, hosted on Law.com and sponsored by Shook, Hardy, and Bacon. I'm your host, Scott Ferguson. In this episode, we'll join Shook Chair Madeline McDonough and partner John Lewis Jr. as they talk about ESG litigation risks. Let's join them. Welcome to E-Squared. This is a podcast series examining ESG litigation risks. I'm your host, Madeline McDonough, the chair of Shukardi and Bacon. I'm joined today by my partner, John Lewis, Jr. John is the managing partner of our Houston office. He serves clients every day. He has a busy business litigation practice, and John leads Shook's diversity and inclusion initiatives. John, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me, Madeline. I look forward to the conversation. You know, I should also mention that John brings an in-house perspective from his time at Coca-Cola, where he led global litigation. As chief litigation counsel, John defended company directors and officers in shareholder derivative cases, and he advised senior management on all aspects of legal risk management strategy, which all leads us to our topic today on ESG and cultural investigations. Indeed, there's a lot to unpack here, Madeline, in these various moving parts, but uh, I look forward to, to chatting. There sure is a lot to unpack here. Uh, so often companies approach these litigation challenges in silos, but that should not be the case with ESG. Is that right, John? Th that's right. Uh, it, it all starts with a company really understanding their own ESG footprint and, and what their particular litigation risks are. Uh, there really needs to be a holistic approach, kind of knitting together all of these various factors into this ESG rubric, uh, which include the health and wellness of the company, both financially and operationally and otherwise, um, uh, inclusion goals, resource management, stewardship of resources, sustainability, privacy, data, uh, boardroom governance, supply chain issues, really the, the entire landscape of uh of different functions that we typically interact with uh, in companies. Well, thanks, John. And I guess by way of background, we should probably explain what does ESG mean? Environment, social, and governance. It's all been talked about for the last 18 months or so, but I think the term was coined many years ago. Can you share a little bit about that story? Absolutely. Uh, uh, as you, uh, as you point out, uh, although ESG is, a, is itself a fairly uh, recent phenomenon as a name for this basket of work and interests, uh, there's really been probably for the last 25 years uh, a, a groundswell of, of different interests and different inquiries uh, that have looked at these topics. Uh, credit is given, uh, I, I guess, primarily for where the term came from in 2005, there had been a study commissioned uh, which identified these particular three areas of concern, environmental sustainability, uh, human capital management, and board governance as really sort of this confluence of, of, of topics that overlap. Interestingly, this 2005 study was called, uh, simply enough, Who Cares Wins? And the report made the case, I think for the first time in, in a really disciplined way, that embedding environmental, social, and governance factors into capital markets just makes good business sense. And it leads to more sustainable markets and better outcomes and, and ultimately is better for companies uh, and those who are stakeholders to companies. 
I think we're learning that ESG transparency can actually impact the profitability of a company. Can you elaborate a little bit on that? Absolutely. So, uh, so companies, particularly, I mean, it, I think it's easier to understand in the context of uh, of consumer brand companies who actually face and are accountable to a public consumer. Uh, for everything from uh, their, the integrity of their supply chain to uh, to their uh, workplace practices to board governance practices, so uh, as we thought about this before, uh, uh, we used to say a company was successful to the extent it manufactured a good product or delivered a great service. Uh, but now there's a broader, more nuanced conversation that we see happening. Uh, there's got to be compliance and there's got to be rigor around, you know, sort of what uh, employment practices look like. Uh, and we've seen companies uh, in the past sort of get themselves uh, in a bit of trouble uh, by not really minding sort of risks uh, in the supply chain, particularly for companies, if you think about it, whose supply chain goes all the way back to, uh, to agricultural space or, or that sort of piece. Uh, so, uh, so we see a lot of that. So we see this whole new landscape of, of stakeholders, certainly the end user, the customer, certainly the share owners. But uh, th- this work kind of concerned itself with sort of the voice of, uh, of, of heretofore not really discussed shareholders, really the institutional shareholders, the pension funds, the retirement funds, the government entities, uh, the government uh, in its regulatory purview is a stakeholder now. And then the public at large, the public at large wants to know that a company is a is endeavoring to be a good corporate citizen uh, and bringing value rather than extracting value uh, exclusively out of a community. So so ESG has really sort of changed the success calculus for a lot of companies in terms of how they define and and, and how they really measure their effectiveness in the marketplace. Very helpful. I wonder what types of lawsuits are you seeing and are there risks and challenges that are more specifically happening now and maybe increasingly so? Well, a great example of sort of how all these elements come together are uh, are in this example of these uh, quote unquote greenwashing cases. And the greenwashing cases, uh, very simply put, allege that a company has taken a position that uh, it is environmentally friendly or sustainable or with respect to a product that is consumed uh, has some efficacious health halo. Uh, So what we see in the ESG space is that those claims being interrogated, whether interrogated by government regulatory agencies, whether being interrogated by consumers to say, you know, you made a representation that this was a healthy product or that it was sustainable or that uh, that the you know that that you know that the produce was farmed in a certain way or the fish was caught in a sustainably in a sustainable way. So we're really getting and, and heretofore there really hadn't been a lot of follow up when people made those sorts of claims. But now we're really seeing um, uh, companies held to account uh, for it. Another example uh, of the litigation that comes about uh, that has come about in the governance space uh, we saw uh, in the summer of 2020 with all the racial unrest were companies making uh, statements about their own institutional views on uh, social justice and then being challenged about the composition of their boards, the compositions of their C-suites. So again, it's it, if, if we think about this, it's just a higher level of accountability for the things that people say and do. But those are a few examples of how they can, if not tended, 
kind of uh, grow from being public relations concerns to actually being full-blown legal concerns. Interesting. Are you seeing that some industries seem to be more impacted than others? Uh, I think so. I I, I think certainly um, uh, industries that concern themselves with the E of ESG, the environmental concern, the the climate concern, sustainability, uh, the stewardship of resources uh, are obviously going to to, to have some heightened level of interest in, in sort of an ESG analysis. Um, uh, consumer facing brands, as I said, uh, anybody, any company that goes to market that sells a product into the public, uh, you know, uh, you know, into the public domain and into the stream of commerce, I think is responsible now for an, uh, or a mindful of an accountability about what that product is. Um, so, uh, automotive, uh, energy, uh, chemical companies, pharmaceutical companies, uh, both on the pharma side, but also on uh, on whatever the over counter or consumer side is, uh, everybody uh, to the extent uh, of employees is going to have concerns with the S of ESG, because that really concerned itself about the the quality of the worker experience, whether OSHA, whether uh, DNI, whether you know forced labor, whatever the allegations may be. Uh, I think uh, all companies see themselves, but certainly energy, automotive, pharma, those places that are obviously there's an obvious nexus to the, you know, to to, to sort of uh, regular folks on the street or places where you see this have kind of the, you know, uh, it, it's broadest interest right now. We will continue our conversation with Shook partner John Lewis after this. Shook, Hardy & Bacon is a premier trial firm serving clients in the health, science, and technology sectors. Whether you're crafting an ESG policy or resolving claims through negotiation or litigation, Shook attorneys build on decades of experience and are positioned to provide end-to-end support. We are back with Shook partner, John Lewis. Often with ESG litigation, there is public scrutiny and sometimes a crisis management issue. Could you talk for a few minutes about ways you might handle or go about handling a PR crisis that might emanate from ESG? Sure. Well, as we know, uh, companies really face a few different kinds of risks when these kind of issues come up. There is certainly legal risk, the risk of, of an adverse court ruling or, or, or an adverse uh, uh, finding that, that not just damages uh, whatever the, the product or, or the incident was, but, but, but also really has some repercussion to the company. Um, you also, um, you also uh, think about regulatory risk or things that may happen in the private space that may draw the attention of those in the public sector who are regulators. And then finally, companies become concerned about uh, reputational risk. And that's to your point, Madeline, about public about public relations and managing a PR crisis. It is altogether possible to sort of win the legal battle, but lose the PR war, if you will. Uh, if uh, and, and companies uh, are, are, are very concerned about how uh, to really inform a litigation strategy with some of the realities of, 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 of PR concerns um, and, and how to do that in a way 
that uh, that really makes sure that you've got a seamless level of, uh, of communication between the two. And uh, so the, the PR work becomes important. It has to be sort of an integrated uh, piece. You mentioned earlier my role as, uh, uh, as a head of litigation. Uh, we work very closely with corporate communications and very closely with PAC and very closely with, uh, with, with folks who helped us craft the messaging that needed to sort of attend what we were saying in court papers and harmonize those two. Because again, to the extent we were saying one thing sort of in the public space, but arguing other things in papers would also create a potential risk. You know, there's so much for a company to consider in ESG, but one thing maybe we should at least mention are a company's suppliers. How do you keep track of them? And is that something that is expected in ESG? One thing uh, companies uh, can do is to have an ESG checklist that includes uh, not just what's happening internally, but to also look at vendors. And uh, again, heretofore, vendor management had been typically a siloed activity that was uh, uh, owned and managed by procurement specialists. Um, um, uh, I know you spoke to our partner, Veronica Gramada, about supply chain issues, given uh, her deep expertise in that area. And of course, it's estimated that 80 percent of ESG litigation is going to stem or has stemmed from suppliers. So it's important to take a deep dive to understand, really to kind of take a new look at supplier and vendor agreements to make sure that you've got uh, uh audit rights, that you've got regular cadence, that you've made sure that folks uh, have affirmatively acknowledged what uh, what your company's expectations are around, uh, around these issues that are sort of subsumed in ESG. You know, Shook, Hardy & Bacon is known for analyzing and trying to identify emerging trends. And I wonder, do you have any thoughts about what might be around the ESG corner? Sure. Well, well, there are a few things. Notably, um, uh, we have got to this point about regulatory purview. The the SEC has weighed in pretty substantially uh, with a 500 plus page volume of proposed rules, rulemaking, which uh, which which over the summer will be subject to some opportunities for public comment. But uh, but. That is momentous because, again, as we talk about bringing these different corridors together, the the governance corridor being brought together with the reputational corridor and the litigation risk corridor, uh, 500 pages of SEC guidance now requires people who advise companies on SEC disclosure and these other things. You've now got to have some sense of. Uh, what is going on in you know in the environmental and the sustainability space? What's going on in the employee space? Because uh, to the extent that these SEC guidelines are enacted, and of course you know uh, I'm I'm hesitant to try to summarize 500 pages in a few lines, but uh, if anybody who practices in the SEC space understands that the principal objective is a robust level of disclosure that informs a prospective investor about whether to buy, sell, or hold stock. So the quality of these disclosures now become a matter of regulatory concern by the SEC in the same way that we've seen uh, privacy concerns now become 8K moments for, for companies and to the extent that we have seen, uh, you know, data breaches have to be, uh, uh, you know, have to be disclosed. New disclosures that have come out of the pandemic and what 
folks have got to say to, to, to the landscape of investors and others. So the SEC guidelines, I think, are the big piece. The other, the other big piece, uh, I think, that we'll see in companies is sort of how companies manage, and, and, and you know, and paraphrase the old African proverb, how you know how folks go about eating the elephant. Um, Here to four, these were all different functions in a company. You had HR people concerned with, you know, w- with the employees. You had uh, a C-suite and corporate secretary people concerned with the governance matters. You had environmental and sustainability people dealing. But there really wasn't a normal cadence within which all those people interacted as a unit. And I think ESG kind of requires people to have some sense of what's happening on the other side of the of uh, of the, the the proverbial cubicle wall. Because uh, uh, the holistic description of the health, the assessment of health of a company around ESG is going to require people to have some fluency in all those areas at the same time. So helpful, John. Thank you so much for joining me today. I enjoyed it. Thank you for having me. That brings us to the end of this episode in the E-Squared podcast series, hosted on Law.com and sponsored by Shook, Hardy & Bacon. Next time, we'll hear from Phil Goldberg on climate change issues. I'm Scott Ferguson. Thanks for listening. For more legal analysis and insights, please visit Law.com.